Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, welcome to the History Hit World Wars podcast, a podcast dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. And in this episode, we've got some questions to answer about Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union. Hi, Chris. Thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure. Today, we're going to talk about one of the most brutal sieges in the history of warfare. In fact, perhaps the most brutal. And this is Hitler's siege of Leningrad. And we'll also touch on a bit about Stalin's leadership, which I know that you're absolutely passionate about and an expert on. But when it comes to this siege of Leningrad, we know that more than a million people died. It was truly brutal and ferocious in fighting. But could it have been avoided? Did Hitler and Stalin not agree to a non-aggression pact in 1939? Well, they did, and the German invasion of the Soviet Union was, of course, a violation of that non-aggression pact. And once Hitler attacked on the 22nd of June 1941, there was no doubt, really, that it was going to be an absolute war, because you have a German fascist leader on one side, a Soviet dictator on the other, and Hitler, with his racist policies, despised the Slavs. He thought they were untermensch. Uh, and therefore, the customary formalities that were observed in other theatres, for example, the Germans against the British and Americans, were disregarded. And one of the reasons for this is a simple legal one, that the Germans had signed the Geneva Convention of 1929, the Russians hadn't, and therefore the Germans thought, well, if they're not going to abide by it, then we won't either. So all the framework for the biggest and worst war probably in history was laid. So for nearly two years, from August 1939 until June 1941, Soviet Union was not exactly an ally, but it was supplying the Germans with huge amounts of raw materials. And also the invasion of Poland in September 1939. We often think of that as the German attack on Poland. But a couple of weeks later, in come the Germans' friends, the Russians at this stage, and occupy the other part of Poland. One of the consequences of that, of course, is that the fortifications on the former Soviet border were now well behind the new border, and that the Russians were in the process of starting to move them when the Germans attacked. So it was really a combination of disasters. 
But once the war between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany started, it became very quickly clear right from the beginning that neither side was going to respect the Geneva Conventions. There were reports from a German officer. They found a, a German company that had been overrun and they'd all been mutilated and cut up. And he said, sir, this is going to be a very different war from the one in Poland and France. Right. So let's take that back a step, because Stalin enters this pact with Hitler. They divide up Poland and Stalin, with Hitler's blessing, moves into the Baltics as well, quite freely yes, at this point. In 1940, yes. And, you, and you're saying to me that Stalin's supplying Germany with raw materials as well. Um, and I, I've also seen the work of people like Ian Johnson, who talk about the cooperation within tanks, especially, and designs and testing of new weaponry. In the, uh, in the interwar period. So when it comes to this invasion on the 22nd of June, 1941, is Stalin shocked? Is he betrayed? Is this a failure of leadership? Well, Stalin was in denial for the first 10 days. He didn't have a nervous breakdown, and we've got ample evidence of that from his diaries, that he had huge numbers of meetings with key people in those first days. He had been passed very good intelligence from the NKGB, as it was then, the uh, Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, which later became the KGB, that the Germans were about to attack. In fact, there's one letter from an agent called Stashina, which was Sergeant Major in the uh, German Air Ministry, saying that the Germans are ready to go. And Stalin says that you can tell your quote, source, unquote. Uh, and I won't repeat then what he said afterwards, but it's about as rude as you can get in Russian or indeed in any other language. So from this, we know that this is not what Stalin wanted to hear. The general staff, meanwhile, people like later Marshal Georgi Zhukov, have been working 16-hour days trying to prepare for this. But nevertheless, when on the 3, 4 in the morning, three German for Moscow time, the Germans attacked. The Russians were taken, or the Soviets, because of course many of them weren't Russian, were taken by surprise. And there was a theory which was produced in 1990 by a gentleman called Viktor Suvorov, who was a former GRU, a military intelligence officer who came over to us, that Stalin was actually planning to attack Hitler when Hitler attacked Stalin and therefore the Germans attacked an army which was in the process of getting ready to attack and therefore wasn't in a defensive position. Now I find Suvorov's thesis quite intriguing but there's no actual evidence that this was the case but we do know and this is very important that on 15th of May 1941 so five weeks before the German attack Zhukov, the plans actually written by Vasilevsky, who later became a famous marshal later in the war, 15-page document, top secret, personal, for Comrade Stalin only, which was a plan for a Russian attack against the German forces in occupied Poland. So while Poland had been there, of course, it was between the Russians and the Germans. But having occupied it from either side, they were now right up against each other. So there was nobody else to get in the way. So this plan, 15th of May 1941, was a plan for the Soviets to take out the German forces in occupied Poland. Now, interestingly, in 2002, a lot of material was being republished in this period 
The memoirs of Marshal Rokossovsky, who was probably the outstanding Soviet general of the war, actually, were published with the expurgated bits that the Soviet censor had taken out, put back in. And among these, was, he says, about 2,200 words was taken out. He says that he was ordered to open sealed orders that he'd been given. He didn't know that the Germans had actually attacked at that point. And it told him to advance essentially northwest with a corps which only had half as many people and a third of the tanks that it should have done. So it wasn't ready for any sort of attack. And funnily enough, the direction he's ordered it to advance in is exactly the same as the 15th of May preemptive strike plan. So that suggests to me that the Russians put the plan into operation because they didn't have another one. So there's a preemptive strike plan there, but perhaps not the capabilities to fulfil it. Well, not at that point. And what I, I personally believe is that probably it was designed for implementation the following year. And that's why the orders were in a sealed envelope, which Rokossovsky could only open when he got told, open your sealed orders. So what has Stalin been doing since 1939? Had he not been building up Russian defences, Russian offensive military capabilities? He had, and that included, uh, very importantly, moving some of the industry east to the Urals, so it was out of range of any German invasion and then German bombing. The Red Army had, of course, taken a very savage hit from 1937, when a lot of the top brass were killed off in Stalin's purge. Uh, and then 1939-40, they had attacked Finland, and although they eventually won and occupied a part of Finland, they were terribly badly mauled by the Finns. And this led to the Voroshilov reforms when the Soviet army started rebuilding itself. But they didn't really take effect until, I reckon, 1943. So you've got Stalin. And in the interim, also, Stalin is desperate not to provoke Hitler in any way because he's not ready for a war. So he's trying to delay and delay. The Russians are supplying the Germans, as I said, with massive supplies in exchange for technical assistance with developing armaments, but on a rather small scale. That included, for example, development of naval armaments. So Stalin is trying to delay this. And then 22nd of June, 1941, bang, the Germans attacked. And, of course, the Red Army High Command is still in a bad way because it's lost some of its best people. And the Germans are utterly experienced. They've won every campaign they fought. After Poland, there was France, Belgium, Netherlands, Denmark and Norway. So uh, they're pretty good. So you can imagine what happened. The Russians were pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. But they put up one hell of a fight. And, so yeah, drive uh, us into a bit of detail about this, Chris. So Stalin's not ready. He's been hedging. He's been stalling. He's been, you know, trying to keep Hitler sweet uh, to a point where maybe Hitler sees this weakness. And in true fashion, you have this rapid movement of troops. So what happens here? How does this invasion play out? How does Barbarossa play out? Well, the... The main German effort is actually in, in the south, in Ukraine. The Eastern Front is really split into two bits by the Pripyat Marshes, which is an area of swamp the size of Scotland. And so there's the north, you have to go to the north of it and the south of it. The Germans also drive into the Baltic states, and this is very interesting, which I only discovered doing research in the Baltic states, was that the Baltic states had been occupied by the Soviets in 1940. 
and it takes about a year for a resistance movement to get going. So the Baltic countries, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, are, are gearing up to rebel against the Soviets. And then in come the Germans. So the, the people in the Baltic say, hello, Germans, thanks for coming. We've done your job for you. So the withdrawing Red Army was attacked by Baltic guerrillas. So the Germans were lucky there, in a sense. And obviously, the main point you go for is the capital, which is Moscow. And there is effectively a bridge between two rivers to the west of Moscow. And so that's an area where the German forces are channeled and the, the Russians can hold them up. So the Germans move very rapidly on Moscow. It's also worth pointing that Barbarossa was originally uh, scheduled, funnily enough, for the 15th of May. Uh, it was delayed until the 22nd of June 1941 because of events in the Balkans. So if they'd started five weeks earlier, they might have got to Moscow five weeks earlier and avoided the Russian winter. However, on 5th, of December, 5th 6th, 7th of December, just outside Moscow, Marshal Zhukov launches a counter-offensive and the Germans are pushed back. And this is the first time in the Second World War that the German army and associated air force has been defeated. And Marshal Zhukov signals to Stalin, this is a victory. And it happens to coincide with Pearl Harbor. So I think you could almost say that 7th of December 1941 is about the time that Hitler's fate is sealed although it's going to take a long time to get to the end. So it's a big day in the Second World War, and it shows that actually Hitler's forces can be pushed back, but there's a long way to go. And yeah. parallel to this, of course, there's Leningrad, and that's been going through a pretty hard time up until this point, hasn't it? Yes. The Germans uh, reached the outskirts of Leningrad in September 1941 and encircled it, and the dispatch from the German generals says the Iron Ring is closed. So here we have a city, normally two and a half million people, which has enjoyed a standard of living roughly comparable with rest of Eastern Europe, actually, up to this point. Another million people who are refugees crammed in there, and it's surrounded on the southern side by the Germans. To the north, you have the Finns. But the Finns, they only want to, to recapture the Finnish territory, which the Russians have taken. They don't particularly want to destroy Leningrad. The German orders, on the other hand, are clear that you don't want to get involved in streets fighting in a big city because, as you know, street fighting in big cities is a nightmare. So the Russians decide to surround it and starve it. So the plan is, it's genocide. The plan is to encircle and starve a city of normally two and a half million people, probably three and a half million people there now. And once they've starved to death, then you go in. And again, the orders are quite clear. They intend to wipe it off the face of the earth. And one of the reasons for that, of course, is it bears the name of Lenin, the communist leader who founded the Soviet Union. So there's an ideological as well as a military aspect to this. So when you say that there was no holding to the Geneva Convention, you really mean we're talking about entire city annihilation, the killing of any human being, be they soldier or civilian. 
Yes, and to some extent that happened with, with the starvation of the Leningrad population. I mean, by the time the siege was really biting in November 1941, and the climate is quite quite predictable in Russia because it's not a maritime climate like ours, the, the snowfalls on the 17th of November around then, the ration per person is down to 125 grams of bread a day for an ordinary person. 250 for a manual worker and 500 for a fighting soldier. So very, very little. So that's a few slices of bread, Chris. Well, 125 grams is one slice of bread. So how did they survive? How do you make it through a Russian winter on one slice of bread? Well, they tried all kinds of things. Very ingenious, as the Russians are. First of all, they devised a way of making bread out of wallpaper paste stripped from the back of wallpaper. This wasn't something you did yourself in your kitchen. They had factories doing. They also discovered that you could get vitamin C out of pine needles. There were, of course, some other problems. I mean, first of all, it looks as if the party dignitaries were not subject to the same rations as ordinary people, and that's part of the story that I'll come to in a minute. And secondly, inevitably, dogs and cats were the first to go, then rats, then even crows, and some people started eating other people. And some of the reports in the state security archives, which I use extensively, show that there were a number of arrests for cannibalism. So people were driven to the very edge of their own humanity in this siege. There was nothing left. Yes. But amazingly, some people maintained their dignity. Also, on the 19th, if I may just explain the geography again, Leningrad is on an isthmus with the Gulf of Finland on one side and Lake Ladoga to the east. And the Germans have a ring around to the south. There is also a small pocket of Russian forces on the shore to the southern side of the Gulf of Finland. And you've got the Finns to the north who aren't really into genocide in the same way that the Germans are. So the lake, Lake Ladoga to the east, starts to freeze. So idea. The road of life goes from Leningrad out as far as Lake Ladoga. And then as the ice freezes, the Russians construct an ice road across the ice of the frozen lake. And it's tested on the 19th of November. And the officer in charge says the ice is young and not very strong, but we cannot wait. Every hour is precious. So they test out the road and then the ice starts thickening. It needs to be about eight inches thick to carry trucks. And Route 101, Road of Life, is open. That's fascinating. So from November, we're talking early on in the winter here, as the snow, like you say, is predictable, it starts to fall. But even with that fledgling ice, no more than, what, three or four inches thick, they start to create eight this... Eight inches to take a truck. Eight inches to take a truck, but early on, much, much yeah, well, less. They, they, they tested it from the 17th of November, and on the 19th, they were told that it was just about good enough. Now, but the thing about the ice, of course, is when, when, when the lake is frozen, you can't put boats across it. So you have to drive across the ice instead. And the ingenuity of the Russians in this was quite terrific. So um, I've heard about some of the technologies. They managed to put, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but like tanks on skis powered by aeroplanes. Aeroplanes, yes. So it's a bit like something out of a James Bond film. 
Yeah, it sounds you've like got, it. You've got skis, you've got a compartment for a couple of gunners, you've got an aeroplane engine, and you've got a propeller, and off you go. So these were remarkable. They also built, of course, effectively igloos as pillboxes. Oh, wow. Yeah, pillboxes made of ice. The Germans would send ski troops out across the ice to try and cut the road. And if you're on skis and you run into a machine gun firing from an ice pillbox, you probably think twice. Yeah, and you see these tanks on skis driving towards you as well. I mean, this is a novel form of warfare, to say the least. And well, like you say, it seems kind of futuristic for the time as well. But it serves a purpose. It managed to get this vital food supply to a starving population in Leningrad. They, they, they really needed 600 tons a day. They were getting an extra 100 tons a day across the ice road. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So how does this start to be relieved? How on earth does Leningrad become free? Because it's encircled on all sides. How does Stalin make sure that the Red Army can get through and start to push Hitler's forces back? Well, it gets worse before it gets better. So you've got in the circled city of Leningrad, the Germans advance further east and capture a key railway junction, which means that the railway going as far as the east side of Lake Ladiga to join up with the ice road, that is also cut. So the Russians then bring in large amounts of labour camp labour and they build what's known as a corduroy road. You know what corduroy looks like. Well, if you put lots of logs side by side and they've got an awful lot of logs, then it looks like corduroy. So they built this corduroy road through remote villages or places that don't even feature on the maps to get to Lake Lagunga that way. Then, first of all, the Russians recapture that key railway junction. So we're back to operating the ice road more normally. There are a total of five counterattacks by the Russians. The first war failed to break out of the Iron Ring. Some launched from within Leningrad, some launched from east of Leningrad by the, the main body of Russian forces. So those take place over 1942 and into 1943. Eventually, it's 1943, Stalin orders the chief of staff in Leningrad prepare for war game number five. Well, war game number five is the fifth counteroffensive. And this one succeeds and breaks the ring. 
However, the Germans are still quite close and Leningrad is still subject to artillery and air bombardment and that goes on till 1944. So from September 1941 to 1944, it's pretty much 900 days. And that's how the siege of Leningrad is known. 900 days. Yes, it was actually slightly less than that. Chris, can you give us some insight into what's going on in the city at this time? You mentioned, of course, things get very bad and there are reports and arrests for cannibalism. But are people not trying to flee and escape? Are there not those who are rising up and revolting? Well, first of all, the second winter was not as bad as the first. First of all, because they're getting supplies in again across the road of life. And also because there are fewer people. So the the Russians are sending reinforcements in and they're taking civilians out across the ice road or later in 1942, obviously, across the water. A perilous journey, I'm sure. Oh, yes. And of course, the Germans still have air superiority at this point. In January 1942, so the siege has been going on for four months, 80 leaflets are found at the Moscow station, which is the station for trains to Moscow, by somebody signing himself the rebel. And the rebel accuses the city government, the party, of taking all the food itself and starving the people and and so on. And now, if you're the authorities in Leningrad, this is one thing you don't need. So the hunt starts for the rebel. 18,000 people work in the vicinity of the Moscow station. So all their handwriting is checked. Now, it becomes, and this is in a book called The Unknown Siege. Again, early 2000s Russian book. And they draw blank. The leaflets continue. And then the rebel, the guy calling himself the rebel, then starts to get careless. And he starts writing letters to particularly Zhidanov, who's the Communist Party chief in Leningrad. And he complains about people being unjustly arrested for certain offences. So they check families of everybody who's been arrested for getting one of those things. Still nothing. Now, at this point, we tend to think of the Russians as round up all the usual suspects. And do what they will. This is proper police work. This really is proper police work. And the rebel starts getting careless and he writes a letter to Zhdanov in a sekretka, which is a pink envelope. And I I imagine that before the war, they were probably used for love letters. And they're still on sale in two districts in Leningrad, two districts. And he complains about the rations and the fact that he's a worker in a hot factory. One of those two districts where the sekretkas are on sale, there is a steelworks. So the um, MVD, Ministry of Internal Affairs, move in and they check everybody's handwriting. And funny old thing, worker number 42, his handwriting matches. So he's arrested. I have, we don't know what happened at his interrogation. I imagine it was probably an interview without coffee. But it may just be, of course, that the authorities were so desperate to find out what motivated this guy, whether he had other contacts and whether he was working for the Germans, all of which he denied, that they just wanted to find out the truth. So the case was closed. It's quite counterintuitive, given our view of the Soviets, that this was real police work. It really is. And it's a fascinating vignette of history because you've got the Finns on one side closing the city. You've got Nazi troops on your doorstep. You've got the worst suffering that has ever been seen in that city, the worst siege in the history of warfare. And yet inside, 
there is some serious real police work going on in a professional and clear manner. This isn't rounding people up, putting them against a wall and shooting them just to be safe. This is trying to get to the root of the problem. Do you think they were scared that if they did start to round people up, you would have more unrest in the city and riots and perhaps a challenge to the leadership there, something which you certainly didn't need at that time? Absolutely. I mean, when things get tough, most people tend to pull together. And I think that's what happened. The other factor, during this time, Shostakovich wrote his Seventh Symphony, the Leningrad Symphony. He actually wrote it in Central Asia, but then decided to perform it in Leningrad. So they now get people in using the route that they secured. So the orchestra played the Leningrad Symphony and they broadcast it on the radio so that the Germans could listen. And the Germans immediately targeted the concert hall with artillery. Oh, it's like uh, a beacon lighting up, isn't it? Putting it on the radio. Yeah, but it was deliberate. It was to raise morale of the city and it was to reduce German morale and it succeeded. So a superb piece of cultural propaganda. And it's yeah. a great piece of music. And so from this point onwards, with the supplies coming in, with the fifth wave attack, War Game 5, starting to push back and push through you start to have a turn in the tide of this particular siege and you know you argue perhaps this is a sign of things to come in the war as well well actually meanwhile of course in late 1942 early 1943 so the siege of leningrad is still going on we have another city called stalingrad yeah of course and stalingrad the, the germans get stuck into fighting in the city again, and that's why they didn't want to get stuck in fighting in Leningrad. And the Russians put just enough troops into Stalingrad to stop the Germans taking it. And meanwhile, they build up their forces on either side, the classic pincer movement. And on the 19th of November, so that's a year after the ice road to Leningrad opened, the counteroffensive begins at Stalingrad. And the German Sixth Army is encircled. So it ironically finds itself in similar sort of situation to the Russians in Leningrad. They are encircled. And in the beginning of February 1943, they surrender. And General Paulus, not von Paulus, by the way, he wasn't a von. Hitler promotes him to Colonel General and then to Field Marshal, because no German Field Marshal has ever surrendered, so he assumed he'd commit suicide. Well, he didn't. And so the victory at Stalingrad was a turning point of the war. And then later on, in July 1943, the Germans launched their last major offensive, which is against the Kursk salient, a bulb, to try and chop it off. And they are repelled. And so from then on, the Red Army supported by the Air Force. And let's not also forget the Navy, because at Leningrad, which is a big naval base, the sailors were fighting as, as ground troops. So from then on, the Red Army and other services are moving pretty much remorselessly west. So this is a victory for the Red Army, for the other forces, for the Russians, for the Soviet Union, but also for Stalin. Does this give us some insight into what he was like as a leader? Do you think he was a good leader, a successful leader, a heroic leader? It would be very unpopular to say that Stalin was a great bloke, um, because clearly the cruelties and the injustices for which he was ultimately responsible were appalling. But I was very interested in a comment by Avril Harriman, who's the American ambassador in Moscow in 44, 45. 
It said that he thought that Stalin was the most effective of the war leaders. Hitler, well, he lost. He thought that Stalin was less naive than Churchill, more knowledgeable than uh, Roosevelt. Churchill was then replaced by Attlee in the 1945 general election. Roosevelt died and was replaced by Truman. So Stalin, of course, was there all the time. So I think Harriman's comment that in spite of all his terrible deeds, and Stalin was always very gracious and generous to Harriman, and he could be incredibly gracious to other people as well. There's two stories I'd like to bring in if I can. The first was that everybody was working on the atomic bomb from 1939. We were terrified that the Germans would get it first. So we and the Americans initiated the Manhattan Project, which was the development of the first nuclear weapons. The Russians, of course, had spies in the British cabinet. Well, they have one in the British cabinet, actually. So they knew all about, well, Stalin and his uh, intelligence chief, Beria, knew all about the Manhattan Project. But it was a young physicist who he'd actually been nominated for the Stalin Prize in 1940 for nuclear physics. And then when the war started, he joined the Soviet Air Force and he was based at Voronezh, south of Moscow, at the end of 1941. And the University of Voronezh had been evacuated, but the library remained. So he wandered into the library, as one does, and had a look at all the latest physics journals. And funny old thing, all the well-known Western physicists had stopped publishing in 1939. Well, that could only mean one thing, and that is that the work had been classified and that they thought they were working on an atomic bomb. And Fleurov had actually designed an atomic bomb himself at the end of 1940. So he, he did something rather brave and he wrote to Stalin. A revolution in military affairs is going to take place and it may take place without our participation. So Stalin summons his chief scientific advisor and, and they say, well, developing a nuclear weapon is going to be incredibly expensive. And Stalin, we must do it. So that's in 1942, that's how the Soviet nuclear weapons program uh, started. Shortly afterwards, in September 1942, I think it was, there was a young tank sergeant who had been badly wounded in the Vyazma Bryansk operation in October 1941. He'd been badly burned. So he was rescued from his blazing tank and sent to Siberia to recover for six months. Now, for a country, a regime that is so prodigal with the lives of its people, the fact that you've spent six months getting a wounded tank sergeant back to be fit seems a bit counterintuitive, but they did. And while he was lying in his hospital bed recovering from his burns, he started doodling and he started designing guns. So when he was let out of hospital, he was sent to work with a couple of gun designers called Degtorov and Spagin. And then there's an entry in Stalin's diary on that day, 9.30 in the evening. And for five minutes, he sees a young gun designer named Mikhail Kalashnikov. Oh, right, Kalashnikov. Kalashnikov. Now, ironically, of course, Kalashnikovs had killed far more people than the atomic bombs did. But it shows that Stalin had an uncanny, I mean, he, he could be utterly cruel, but he could also be quite empathetic and sympathetic. So when military historians talk about military power, we talk about the moral, the physical, and the conceptual components. Well, Stalin's had an incredible eye for detail. So the physical component, including the development of technologies, he can, ma he can manage that. 
his utter disregard for human life in some cases also meant that paradoxically he could be a master of the physical because you know army needed to be expended it would be expended and tough his had a very very good brain so he was a master of the conceptual poem of how battles and operations are fought and also even grand strategy the alliances with working with the allies which he was very successful at and the moral component well he had this incredible memory for faces and he could sometimes as i've said show this extraordinary empathy so for all his faults i would say i would agree with harriman that he was probably the most effective of war leaders chris Thank you so much for taking us on a journey through the war on the Eastern Front and giving us a glimpse into the mind of one of the great war leaders, Stalin. What are you working on at the moment? Well, what I'm actually working on at the moment is an article for a journal that I edit, which is about the first modern international peace support operation. No NATO, no European Union, not in 1897. So the great powers, Britain, France, Italy and Russia, send an international peacekeeping force into Crete to oversee the withdrawal of the Ottoman Turks. And unlike Cyprus, it worked. They divided the island up into four sections, going from west to east, Italian, Russian, British, French, and they um, got lots of Turks safely out and back to Turkey. Well, that sounds fascinating, and we'll definitely get you back on the show to talk about that. And of course, Absolute War, your seminal text, award-winning book, is available to buy on Amazon as well. Thank you so much, Chris, for coming on the show. It's my real pleasure. Thanks, Chris. Bye-bye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.